Hello, I'm Nicholas. And I'm Kirsten. And this is Anthroposnips, where we explore recent-ish papers surrounding anthropogenic impacts on natural ecosystems. What's up, nerds? Hello, everybody. Welcome to our third, third Anthroposnip. Uh, something like that. Let's get a little, little uh, fizzy drink ASMR going here. Oh yeah, <laughs> sizzle. That'll make up for the fact that my upstairs neighbors never stop wearing boots. I'm not even joking. It was five thirty in the morning, and they had stayed up all night. And the dude was still wearing boots and walking around the kitchen. Keep in mind, like ninety percent of the part apartment is is carpeted so he was just walking around in the kitchen in boots like the entire night i don't understand it unfathomable um it's a thing but i guess we should probably talk about science right yeah we should probably not get into wearing boots indoors because i'm gonna go off on a whole a whole tangent about that for sure okay so anthroposnips as you guys know is super laid back we're basically just focusing on a single topic well not necessarily a single topic even a single paper because it's easy for us, we can get through it very quickly. And some of the novel information that's coming out within the last few years is super awesome. So today, I'm super excited to talk about this one. This is a study done, well, published in 2021 by Turvey et al. called From Dirty to Delicacy, Changing Exploitation in China Threatens the World's Largest Amphibians, published in People and Nature. Uh, the DOI and the link to that will, of course, be in the show notes for this episode. So essentially, this study is examining the rising increase in farming of giant salamanders throughout China. When we think of farming, I think typically we're thinking of relatively self-sustaining agricultural practices or even fish or livestock farming. However, the researchers from this study hypothesize that increasing demand of the meat as a delicacy could be causing increases in the decline of wild giant salamander, Andreas species and subspecies populations throughout their native range due to wild caught individuals being harvested to meet these demands. I should probably describe what we're talking about a little bit more in depth. So for those of you who may be unfamiliar with these giant salamanders, I'm not exaggerating, and their name is not an exaggeration. Now, if you guys know what a hellbender is, that's a big salamander. These are by far and wide much larger, the largest amphibians in the world. This article cites them reaching upwards of 2 meters, which is 6.5 feet in length, and up to 50 kilograms, which is 110 pounds. That is legitimately terrifyingly large. Yeah, that is huge. That is taller than like any people I actually know and weigh just less than I do. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an insanely large amphibian. I mean, typically we see amphibians as these tiny little creatures that, you know, are pretty much widely accepted as cute little things. However, in China, they are so large that they have fostered a lot of negative myths and crazy stories about them. And we'll get into that, or at least this paper will get into that. It's kind of so, like a slimy dragon. Yes. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> we have the mud dragon or snapping turtles here in the U.S. And 
Then, of course, you've got uh, the slimy dragon in China. I like it. So recent studies have shown that these species have been depleted and or extirpated throughout the 18 Chinese provinces with which they call home. Many of these species and subspecies are listed as critically endangered due to pollution and alterations in flow rate and turbidity of their native habitats. This is known information. This study is not necessarily looking at those anthropogenic pressures on this genus. However, this study did recognize the loss of giant salamanders throughout habitat that is unaltered and high and has high resource availability, which should be able to support populations without significant loss. So essentially, they noticed that even in areas that are ecologically sound and should be good habitat for these amphibians, they're still in great decline. Even with legislation in place against hunting and collecting, studies show that this species is likely in decline in these areas due to over-exploitation. So that aforementioned harvesting for farming. Interestingly, wow. <laughs> Interestingly, why can't I say that word? Interestingly, Interestingly, this study references uses of giant salamander products in traditional methods for over 2,000 years. So that means that they've been used for years. They've been harvested. But there is no concrete data su to suggest this. It's just references throughout, you know, history, because we obviously don't have studies back done 2,000 years ago. The authors state that pressures on the species may have drastically increased in recent times due to reductions in cultural taboos that originally consider these animals to be undesirable. So without that added protection that comes from these myths or the horror stories behind them, they may be even more exploited than in the past, which is just more pressure to the additional anthropogenic pressures that are happening via like pollution and things like that. That is so interesting to me because this is like one of the first times where debunking myths around something is causing it more harm than good, I think. Right, because most of the yes. time stigma and fear and that kind of thing, eliminating that helps the species. But this is actually just making people be like, no, maybe it's delicious. Right, yeah. I mean, I spent the last weekend literally walking around a venomous snake, quote unquote, migration and just, you know, learning that the myths behind these animals are not necessarily true. And that's one of the stigmas we constantly try to break as science communicators so that snakes are not that dangerous. And that actually helps with their conservation. But like you said, in this case, it could be actually potentially hurting them. Researchers conducted the study in suitable salamander habitat, which was outlined by a previous study, and then looked at social science interviews to get information regarding salamander exploitation. They surveyed 2,932 rural households, 66 members of giant salamander farms, 115 county-level fishery bureau officials, and 835 potential urban end consumers across 16 provinces. So this study was very thorough. But it is worth mentioning that this study is done in a social science manner, not necessarily done using mathematical statistics on populations or studying the populations directly, but rather getting a framework for understanding of where these pressures might be to probably set up for additional studies in the future. Many of the people involved in this study have done significant direct in-depth studies on giant salamanders and their habitats and their biology and things like that. So this is not like a bunch of people just doing a random social science study. This is definitely a bunch of intense experts on these salamanders 
looking to set up a framework for future studies and conservation efforts. It's super important to see this inter interdisciplinary uh, study in any way, though, as well. So it's something that more right. and more I think we're getting better at, but definitely need to work on more. So that's right. It's it's the opposite of parachute science. You're actually trying to get the locals information and stuff that's, you know, might not necessarily be like the the framework of traditional science, but cultural information and knowledge is just as important to science and things like that and can be even more helpful to the better conservation and scientific methods that result from those interactions. I'm going to break down all of these different areas where they studied, and there's going to be a lot of different numbers and statistics and things like that, but you don't need to pay attention so much to that. It's more or less the information that results from these studies. So within farms, they gathered information regarding stock composition and origin. So these are salamander farms specifically they're looking at. Government interviews looked at local legislation and how well it was enforced. Urban interviews looked at consumption levels of salamanders. So if someone had or had not eaten a salamander before, or if they knew somebody who had. They also looked at the frequency of consumption by asking how long it had been since someone had eaten, etc., etc. Essentially, they're just trying to get a bunch of different areas to learn where these pressures are lying, where it's resulting, and where they're going to need to better address the conservation of these species. Because obviously, if it's been in traditional medicine for over 2,000 years, it's a cultural thing, and you need to approach that in a manner that is not going to be detrimental to the culture, but also going to be beneficial for the conservation of the species. So results, 83.9% of rural households surveyed recognized giant salamanders, meaning that they knew what they were talking about. 8% specifically stated that salamanders could be used in alternative medicine methods. 7% said they had actually caught giant salamanders before. And 15.4% stated that they had eaten giant salamander. Now, obviously, 15.4% doesn't sound like that much, but when you compare it over uh, the massive population that exists throughout all the provinces in China, that number could be pretty high, especially with a critically endangered genus. Interestingly, the respondents that stated giant salamanders were associated with bad luck had a higher percentage of consumption of giant salamanders than those who did not associate them with that negative myth. So... Essentially, the people who are more afraid of the salamanders and the myths that are, are surrounding them are more likely to have eaten a giant salamander. Now, there's a bunch of different conclusions or assumptions you could make with that. I'm not going to get into them, but I just thought that that was something that was incredibly interesting. And obviously, they thought it was well because uh, they put it in the paper. So continuing some more statistics. 37.9% of surveyed farms reported having wild-caught stock. 47% stated that they preferred wild-caught stock for genetic propagation, growth rates, and disease resistance. Now, that makes sense mm -hmm. because if you're constantly breeding and things like that, and they're all in these sterile indoor environments, they're not going to have that same genetic diversity, the same growth rates because it's a different environment than their natural habitat. So there could be limiting factors there. And obviously they're not going to have the disease resistance that they would get from a wild caught specimen. So as from a farming standpoint, it's obviously in their best interest to supplement whatever they're farming with wild caught stock. So 15.7% of surveyed 
counties reported illegal poaching and trading of salamanders, while only 5.9% had issued permits to allow the collection of wild salamanders, which means that there's a disjunct in that ratio as far as permits being offered for the collection and illegal poaching of these salamanders. So again, that's something that's known. Poaching exists. They're trying to figure out where the pressures are lying for that poaching. Interviews from 835 random urban consumers indicated that 32.7% knew somebody who had eaten a giant salamander. Through the interviews, the researchers referenced that it does appear that eating giant salamander may be a sort of status symbol, both because of rarity and the price of it. So it might not necessarily be so much more nowadays traditional medicine. It may more so be along with the lines of I'm eating something that's incredibly rare and expensive. So therefore, look at me. I'm rich and cool. Is right. This is like a the, like a caviar sort of thing here. Right. Exactly. Caviar eggs. is anybody mm-hmm. who says caviar is delicious. You can get out of my face. It's not. It's really not. It's just. It's just not. <laughs> so Nicholas, just, are I, you I, admitting I'm, that I'm you've not... had legit caviar or just like normal like fish eggs? Because I think the legit legit caviar is like the sturgeon eggs. Right? It's the sturgeon or... eggs, yes, right. which I have technically not not had. Right. But I can't imagine that it tastes much different from that other like different. fish row. Right. <laughs> so yeah you're i'm not gonna budge on this one you're wrong (laughs) (laughs) normally i'll like have a little caveat and be like i'm just kidding no i'm not you're wrong if you think caviar is good it's a waste of money and time anyway being that this study is done socially and is determined upon the honesty of the participants it is likely that many of these statistics are very underrepresented due to participants not wanting to admit that they are collecting or consuming or keeping wild-caught salamander. The fact that they were able to get this much response is pretty staggering to me because when I look at it, like I feel like if you were to go to a different country like the U.S. and ask places if they were doing things illegally, they wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we totally do that. So I think that it's definitely a lack of understanding of just the conservation efforts behind these animals, because I don't think that it's necessarily the people being interviewed understand that there's, they're doing something wrong and you can't necessarily fault somebody for just being uneducated in a subject that they don't know about. They're just trying to provide for their own livelihood and things like that. There's probably not much negative intent behind a lot of these poaching things. They're probably just trying to make ends meet or, you know, do something that is most fiscally, viable for them so that's always something to to think about when we hear about poaching and things like that is that it's a systematic problem and not an individual problem because you're driving people to poach because of flaws in a system not necessarily in cultural practices or individuals choices right this is where it breaks down not just the science being interdisciplinary but conservation as a whole like looking at how we can look at the social aspects and the biological aspects and and try to find that happy medium between all of it because it's not it's not always easy it's never easy i would say actually but it's super important but yeah i think it's interesting that even what was it 47 percent claimed that they they preferred to have wild salamanders which logically makes sense but it's it's quite a 
high number, especially seeing as it seemed like there's a lot of like non-compliance around like whether or not they're allowed, but it's good to see some honesty for the surveys at least. Right. Yeah. It, at the very least, it's a good basis for understanding where these pressures are coming from. So it, the, the statistics don't necessarily need to be super accurate. They just need to be an indicator of what to pursue. So like I mentioned, obviously, there's not a lot of there's not going to be a lot of continuity with the statistics or accuracy, but that doesn't necessarily matter. So this regardless of the fact that some of these statistics are underrepresented, this study does indicate that there are many existing salamander farms that house, prefer, and actively collect wild salamanders for consumption and breeding stock. So like I was just saying, it doesn't really matter what the statistics are. It's indicating that there is an issue, and these are the, the steps that we need to take to pursue the conservation of these species. I'm going to quote directly from the paper for this next part because I just thought that they did it as accurately as possible. Mm -hmm. There were 2,622 company model salamander farms of which 2,080 were legally licensed. So there's like 600 that are not even legally licensed across China at the end of 2013. So using this figure to extrapolate from the results of our farm survey, which sampled 62 counties across 12 provinces from 2013 onwards and is thus representative of contemporary nationwide farming patterns, we estimate that there may have been approximately 42,000 wild-caught breeding adult giant salamanders and 164,000 wild-caught sub-adults in company model farms across China at this time. This estimate does not account for additional wild-caught animals also likely to be held across China in small holder model farms and breeding cooperatives. So to just kind of explain that direct quote there, essentially, based on the information that they collected from this social st study, they did it's quick math to determine that there's like 42,000 adult giant salamanders and 164,000 sub-adult salamanders in captivity that are wild caught which is a staggering number for how few there are left in the wild and if that trend continues then they will surely be extinct um before before too long right that's a huge a huge number so that last number I, it would be something that i wouldn't necessarily take as face value because they're obviously making pretty strong assumptions about a lot of things to come up with those those numerical statistics however again with the underrepresentation and the probable lack of truth in some of the responses throughout this social survey i think that it's a fair assumption to put an estimate out there with you know a ballpark relativity to the numbers that they're given especially because most of the people in this paper are experts on the subject and i feel like their their knowledge on the subject is probably pretty extensive and therefore they're giving an educated guess not necessarily just pulling numbers out of thin air so right and sorry to interrupt you nicholas but you I, my my understanding of social science isn't phenomenal but i do know that there is certain factors used in the statistics to account for dishonesty and to account for um, people just not understanding or properly answering the questions. So they do have things to adjust for and account for the, these uncertainties in 
survey type statistics. So there is also that where they're, they are accounting for, for what you're saying is, is a bit of a problem. Yeah, that is a good point to bring up. And they do reference those statistics and the the algorithms that they use to come up with those, those curves for the statistics to understand that they're accommodating some of the, the lack of honesty and, and whatnot. So yes, again, educated guess, but like a very highly educated guess. And also the statistics, again, aren't necessarily the point here. What they've done is taken a hypothesis and attempted to find where the conservation efforts for this genus need to be placed. And clearly they have come up with a lot of different areas for that. And I'm certain that the subsequent results of this are going to be very beneficial for the conservation, probably beneficial for the farmers and probably beneficial for the consumers as well. And hopefully just beneficial for the preservation of this incredible species I don't know if I'll ever get to see a giant salamander in my life. I sure hope I, I'm able to. But regardless, what an insane animal to share the planet with in this time. So that is the end of this Anthroposnip. It was quick. It was interesting and informative. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. Keep your eyes out for the next full episode, which is coming to you next week. All right. Before we totally wrap this up, I do just want to throw a little note out there Um, for anybody who has ever wondered about supporting us through not uh, sponsoring directly an episode. We have set up a program through Buy Me a Coffee. The link is in our different social medias. You could just find us under the Anthropocene. And there's just a little space there for you guys to go ahead and leave us a little bit of a donation or set up a membership. And if you can't donate, we totally understand. And the biggest thing that you can do to support us right now is just share and tell your friends if you like this podcast. But in case you're wondering, that is there. And uh, refresh my memory, but if they sign up at a certain level, don't they get access to different goodies and things like that? Yes. So there is an option for a one-time donation if you don't want to sign up to a subscription service, because I know a lot of people aren't a big fan. Or for $3 a month, you can check out our bloopers and get early uh, notifications for what episodes are going to be. So you guys can get some questions and comments in there. And then there's a higher tier where we will let you watch our videos unedited, um, which is, I mean, we're, we're excited about it. Maybe we'll regret it later <laughs> because there's, there's definitely some things cut out here, but uh, that's just a little fun extra that you guys get if you sign up for the second tier membership. So just go over to buy me a coffee and check it out. And if you have any questions, let us know on social media. We're always here. See you later, nerds. Thank you. All right.